You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. All right. Good morning. Uh, if you're new, welcome. If you're not new, welcome. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm the worship and arts pastor here. Reed, I don't normally do this. In fact, this is the first time I've ever done this. Um, at this place or technically anywhere. So I'm a little bit nervous uh, in the way that you would be when you're doing a thing for the first time, but I think it's going to be fine. I'm also mindful of the fact that I'm really just not afraid to fail in front of you, which feels like a massive gift, so thank you for that. A couple other thank yous. One, thank you to Josh for, uh, I don't know where Josh is, I can't know, for sharing your pulpit with me, for trusting me to do that. Um... Another one, thank you to Nathaniel for playing music today. Uh, woo! Big fan of Nathaniel Mosher. Um, he's been around for many years, as has his wife, Emily. We all went to undergrad together and um, cut our teeth playing music in front of people at the same like open mic coffee house. So have a lot of fond memories with Nathaniel. Um, one further thing. Uh, okay. Okay, so <clears throat> we'll see what we can do with that. Yeah, we got it. There's a definition. So, uh, our youth group, the Order of the Phoenix, um, are in the habit of providing Josh with a word when he gets up here to preach that he must either incorporate on the fly into his sermon or buy them donuts the next week. So I have received my word, which is a lot harder than any word I've ever seen them give Josh. But... <laughs> um, I just want you to know that because if the time comes where I somehow pronounce this word and fling it in their direction, you will know I have succeeded in my task. And if that time doesn't come, you'll know I'm buying these donuts next week, uh, which truth be told, I'm happy to do. So win-win situation for me. Um, okay, anyway, we have been in the midst of a series of, of sermons at UBC for the past many weeks that came out of a staff retreat that we did in December, which... Uh, among other things, was centered around reimagining UBC at this point in time, which in some ways is the story of UBC, a perpetual reimagining, and it's one of the things I love most about it. Uh, But as a part of that, we charted out some core values of our community in in bullet point form. So that has been the content of our sermons for the past many weeks, and I am coming in with... uh, what I think is the, the last in this series with two, uh, two of our bullet points. One of them is ancient future, which is how we describe our worship style. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, the other one is sacred secular. Um, but I think we had written down as culture, cultural posture. You know, this is the way we relate to the division or non-division between these things around us. Um, so I'm going to start there. I'm going to talk about sacred secular stuff. Then we're going to talk about ancient future stuff. And then at the end, we're going to have a hard pivot. So something different for a couple of minutes. So you're sort of getting three sermons for the price of one today. It's kind of great. Uh, all right, let us begin. I just wanted you to have a lay of the land so we can go on this journey together. Uh, you might have noticed at, before the service starts each Sunday, we have these slides that rotate. And amongst those are like, you know, volunteer opportunities or um, uh, upcoming events and things like this. But then there's also these uh, three statements that we have. I'm going to read one of them to you. And that is, the division between what is sacred and what is secular is a false one. We believe all truth is God's truth. 
And we can encounter God in creation, art, culture, and the ordinary everyday. So that's what I'm talking about today. Uh, there's a few ways we could get into talking about this. I'm going to start with sort of what I perceive to be the cultural backdrop that led to this being sort of a concern at UBC. So I don't know much about your background. I can tell you about mine. Um, and maybe they're similar. Maybe they're different. I guess this is for the benefit of those who didn't have these experiences. But I grew up in Tennessee as a Southern Baptist. And uh, I was coming of age in the early 2000s. Read, I was entering youth group in the early 2000s. And that was when UBC was just a few years old. And I quickly became aware of the fact that there was a deep concern, sort of aggressively so, that we'd be engaging Christian media of all sorts. So like Christian music, Christian movies, God help us. Um, like Christian t-shirts, I don't know what else. But it was, you get the idea. It's just like they want us ingesting Christian things, sacred things, and not secular stuff, music, etc. One of the ways this would manifest itself would be at these like high octane spiritual moments, youth camp, stuff like that. The, uh, it could occur that someone would say, kids, take out your CDs, because we carried around CDs. And then they would be like, take out the secular ones and break them, destroy them, you know, which is very intense and sounds kind of dangerous to do with your bare hands. But this is a, a thing that happened like regularly and I guess people do all sorts of weird things when they have power of a group of people in a microphone. But uh, what is stranger to me is that people did it. People did it often. And maybe some of you did it. Maybe some of you broke your, your CDs when you were in youth group. I don't know. I know this. I know that I did not do that. Not once. You know what I did? I pretended. Not that I pretended to break my CDs. I pretended to be in deep, contrite prayer such that I had no concept of what was happening around me. And let me tell you this. It worked. Every time, no one ever bothered me, I kept all my CDs. <laughs> but um, this was alongside of a thing where we would sort of like, you know, develop these, these defenses of certain bands that we wanted to listen to, right? We had to like try and prove that it was in some way like Christian or good or worthwhile. And like, which led to, I spent a lot of effort, that, this is embarrassing but I have to be honest with you all. I spent a lot of time and effort trying to justify listening to a band called Creed, which was like so much work for no payoff at all. And then all these years later, I'm free of that burden, but I'm not free of Creed. They're still knocking around up here. This is like a lose, lose, lose situation. Anyway, so we would do that, but we were having this conversation, like what makes music Christian, you know? And we were talking past each other with all these different ideas, but we should have been asking a question like, can music be Christian? Much more interesting question. We could probably do something with that, but no. We had this other question. So we had ideas like maybe Christian music is music that talks about Jesus. Pretty easy. Uh, music that uses spiritual language of some sort. Uh, Christian-y words. I don't know. Music with a message. I don't, we, we're all talking past each other, but ultimately it didn't matter. None of it mattered because when it came down to it, an inescapable fact was this. There was some music that was labeled Christian, and there was some music that was not labeled Christian. So what do you do with that? You know, it's like, well, it's right there. It says it. It's written in stone. But like, who labeled it Christian? Christian record labels and radio marketing departments. And why do they do this? Because they were trying to craft a brand to then populate with content to appeal to a wide variety of people such that the content of said songs needs to be approachable from a wide variety of perspectives and hopefully not say anything that you could disagree with. And why? 
because they wanted to make money. It's a business. Of course they wanted to make money, and they did. They made so much money. They still do. Now, is that bad? I don't know, and I don't know why you're asking me. (laughs) But if we have people walking around looking out for some indicator that there's some music that God wants to be associated with in some way and some that doesn't, while this is going on, they might be tempted to perceive as the movement of God what is in fact something more akin to like the hand of the market, right? Put differently, if you're expecting that like this thing that's labeled Christian is the sum total, because it has this label, the sum total of the activity or the association of God with art or music or whatever, and that same music is being populated by something that's going to turn a profit for a group of people, I should say they probably, there's people who were doing this because they believed in the cause as well. But no matter how much they believed in a given song, if it's not turning a profit, they're not going to keep pouring money into it. So yes, turning a profit, it's a business. Uh, If you're conflating those two things, the movement of God and the turning of profit, that's bad. I'm confident to say. But um, ultimately, what are you going to do? Maybe these labels in of themselves are just not set up to do this. And that's what I think. And I I think that's what, uh, what UBC would would say, and that is, it's not that sacred and secular or Christian, not Christian, whatever, are useless terms. What terms are useless? How could they possibly be useless? We use them. But maybe what they're useful for is telling us everything about our expectations of a thing or like narrating our experience with a thing up to a certain point. And they're really bad about telling us about the essence of a thing and all a thing could ever be. Uh, so Madeline Engel has said, I'm certain, but I must tell you, I could not find this when I was gathering these thoughts together. So maybe I'm just saying this to you right now. I guess it doesn't really matter. But I think Madeline Engel has said, these sorts of words are our way of drawing hard boundaries around the world, right? In some ways to say where God will and won't go, you know? Or maybe it's something more like it's where God can and can't go, which is very bold, but we love to control things, don't we? But when it comes down to it, if we are faced with that sort of approach, hopefully pinging in the back of our minds somewhere from the Psalms is, where can I go, O Lord, that you are not with me? And that boundlessness and this very bounded nature of viewing the world come into tension together. Because time and again, truth and beauty and goodness and God are in the habit of being where they are regardless of how we have it labeled. So, Jamie, you're preaching a sermon. Are you going to talk about the Bible? Yes. But first, we have to talk about a couple of ancient worship bops in the form of poems. So I'm going to throw them on the screen for you. <clears throat> they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. Mm. Another. Let us begin with God, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. For every street, every marketplace is full of God. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity everywhere. Everyone is indebted to God, for we are indeed his offspring. Slaps. That was from Aratus. The one before was Epimenides. And as you have likely discerned, yes, these poems have a very specific supreme deity in mind, and that is the Greco-Roman world's favorite daddy god, Zeus. Now, 
Why am I talking about Zeus? Good question. Come with me. Come with me. Let us go to Athens in the first century where we will join Paul. Athens is an interesting town. You've likely heard of it. Uh, Athens has this great exchange of ideas going on. And amongst these great exchanges of ideas, we find a lot of talk about gods. And namely, we have this mechanism where you can sort of like audition a god to be added to the pantheon because they're polytheists. They're not really trying to avoid um, gods. I was going to do it, but I just can't. You get donuts. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so they're not trying to avoid gods. They, they're very open to these things, but they're not going to let just any god into the pantheon. They must be convinced of this first. So they have this mechanism by which you can give a presentation and they discuss it. I say that to say, I don't think Paul was exploiting that mechanism on purpose, but for some reason, he's in public and he's talking about God, so they usher him over to the Areopagus because of this thing to give his, his presentation to shoot his shot. And that's where we will join him in Acts 17. <clears throat> then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he's not far from each one of us, <clears throat> For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Isn't that interesting? If you didn't catch it there at the end, he's quoting those poems I read that are about Zeus. So what's going on here? Do we think that Paul quickly went and consulted like an ancient apologetics textbook? It's like, if you're talking to someone who worships Zeus, this is what you say to back them into a corner and they have to grant what you're saying is true. No. Do we, does Paul seem to have quickly run to the library to comb through scrolls and codexes to try and find a point of connection with these Athenians? No. Paul knows these poems. He knows them. He knows them well. He's, he's engaging with these poems in the way you do with something that like has pierced you. The, the playfulness with the source material that has pierced you, that has formed the way that you think about God and yourself and the world, such that when you go to speak of the God revealed in Jesus Christ, these words just come pouring forth because they're true. He's speaking it truthfully and positively. But if Paul were in my youth group, they would have had him destroy those poems as a sacrifice unto the Lord because they weren't Christian which presents a bit of a pickle because now it's in our Bible. So here across the sands of time, it's a very normal thing to say of God, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Very uncontroversial. Nobody's gonna fight you about that. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. But when we think we're quoting the Bible, when we think we're quoting Paul, we are actually quoting Epimenides, who's talking about Zeus in his work, Credica, which Paul quotes elsewhere in Titus in a way that's superfluous and kind of humorous. We don't have time to get into it right now. I just want you to know this is happening more than once. And we return to the question, what is going on here? It seems as though Paul is not going about his life in the world with very rigid categories 
that tell him where he might encounter truth or God and where he might not. But instead, it seems as though Paul is carrying a lens through the world in search of truth and God wherever they might be. So we're in the season of Epiphany right now. Epiphany is the third stop on the church calendar. We start in Advent, late November, early December, this moment that's like the season of gloom and dislocation. And we're reaching back, grasping on the stories of God acting in the lives of the people of God in big ways. And we're reaching ahead to uh, a hope that God will continue to be God for us. And in the middle, we're navigating that tension in faith and hope, even hope against hope. And then on Christmas, the light of the world pierces the gloom of Advent. The uh, candle is lit in the dark room, as N.T. Wright says, and there's hope. And then in Epiphany, we're, our metaphorical eyes are adjusting to this light. We're, we're seeing the world around us differently. We're re-encountering Jesus as if for the first time, trying to cultivate a holy curiosity to ask questions we think we already have answers to, to recalibrate that lens. And I guess I just want to say, to talk about this during that season, I want to make clear, the lens that we cultivate to think about God tells us something about ourselves and about our neighbor and how we're created to interact with each other and to love one another. So when we turn outward from the time that we share together at church in worship, and we move into like the worship that is the whole of our lives that we live, we carry that same lens and it's gonna affect what we see and how we see it. So yes, when UBC talks about rejecting the distinction between sacred and secular stuff, what's not going on there is we're not trying to differentiate or distance ourselves from like early 2000s evangelicals. Like we're so much cooler. No, who cares, honestly? Uh, what we are doing is saying that we are a people who are attempting to carry a lens with us into the world to find truth and beauty, and goodness, and the living God, wherever they might be, not where we might have labeled them to be, or expect them to be. Sacred secular. Now, let us move to ancient future. <sighs> come with me, come with me, to the mid-90s. A magical place. There we will join a young uh, David Crowder and a young Jack Parker at the inception of UBC. This, this new church is, is coming into being. And they've been asking this question about like, you know, what's this place like? You know, they're, they're trying to create a place that's a reimagining of what church could be to create a space where people might find a fit who otherwise haven't found a fit anywhere else. And of course, when thinking about what songs you play and the sort of place, it's an open question. So what do they do? They go to Hastings, rest in peace. And they get a stack of praise and worship CDs carefully selected by Christian record labels, I have no doubt. And they take them back to their apartment and they begin listening to them ponderously, taking it in, seeking out that which they might harvest for the songbook of this new community. And as they're doing this, a roommate comes down from upstairs and he leans in the doorway and he takes a long drag off a cigarette because this is the mid-90s. And then he speaks, what does he say? He says, what the expletive is this expletive. And the words of the prophet mirrored back to them what they already knew. <laughs> and that is, these songs weren't gonna cut it. That when it came to figuring out what role music was gonna have in this place, they were, 
the trails before them that were well trod were not going to take them where they were trying to go. No, they would need to reimagine this too. And that they would need to blaze that trail themselves. So I should say, I do want to pause. I don't know what songs they were listening to that fateful day. Um, but I'm confident of one thing. It doesn't matter what songs they were. I'm confident that they were immensely meaningful to any number of people in any number of ways. And I think that that's good and true and beautiful. And that can be true that they have been like life-changing songs for some people. And it can be true that maybe they weren't the best fit for this community. I just want to be clear about that. Those things can coexist. Now, uh, so what do they do from here? They end up, they grab some hymns. And then they grab some contemporary songs. They start writing songs. And then, as Josh mentioned last week, they reach outside of the bounds of what's normally considered to be church music. And Hootie and the Blowfish is in the mix all of a sudden. And with all this together, all this ancient stuff and all this future stuff, you see where I'm going with this? Uh, they, they play it through the nexus of particular people in a particular time and place who are a part of a t- particular community and play music a particular way and something new could happen. Thus was the birth of UBC Music and thus was the uh, inception of our ancient future approach at UBC. So hopefully you can see the way in which the, the sacred secular approach that I was talking about is lived out in that way of engaging church stuff, right? Um, And I could say many more things about this, uh, the way that it impacts other aspects of church. But, uh, and I would love to talk to you uh, about that if you have interest. But we have to get going. Because we've arrived at our hard pivot. So let's pivot. Come with me to Amos chapter five. So this is a kind of lengthy reading. It's not too long. Uh, It's not the entire chapter, but selections from it. Uh, So I'm gonna read this. And then it's, the last four lines are probably the most important. I'm going to say a couple things. And we'll be done. <clears throat> the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, those are constellations, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash out against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who reproves in the gate. That's like a prophet. And they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of human stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And here we are. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Why am I reading this from Amos? I'm reading this because I'm frankly uncomfortable talking about our relationship to the sacred and the secular, of carrying a lens to the world to find truth and goodness and beauty in God wherever they might be in whatever creative pursuits we might have without also saying very clearly and mostly to myself that it's all just noise. That it's all just nothing. If it's not accompanied by an instigating, a self-same turning towards of the lens of our lives, towards the margins of society, 
towards the cast to the side, the forgotten, the trampled, the vulnerable, the poor, the people who are waiting for someone, anyone to see them, to come alongside them, to bear their burdens with them, and to relate to them as human beings with dignity. So yeah, I've let us carry a lens into the world that allows our creative pursuits and our worship to find God and truth and goodness and beauty everywhere, so long as we remember one thing, and that is God's favorite song is justice, played to the tune of broken chains and dignity restored. UBC, may we learn to sing it. Amen. Um, at this point in the service, we like to leave a time of silence to invite the Spirit to shape our thinking as we reflect on what we've just heard. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new or correct something I've said incorrectly, so we'll take a time of silence now.